Last month, Orlando Bloom was asked in an interview about his daily routine. His response turned a lot of heads and led to quite a few parodies on social media and follow-up articles just absolutely skewering him. I'll give you a little sample. Why not? <clears throat> he said, I like to earn my breakfast. Don't all of you, right? I like to earn my breakfast, so I'll just have some green powders that I mix with brain octane oil, a collagen powder for my hair and nails, and some protein. Then I'll go for a hike while I listen to some Nirvana or Stone Temple Pilots. Come on, man. He spends 20 minutes chanting, and then he adds some Buddhist writings to his Instagram stories. It's a good use of time, I imagine. He says he spends a lot of time dreaming about roles for himself. And by then, it's close to lunch, which consists of vegetables or a stew. Orlando says, I will cook at times, but otherwise, there's a team of people. Uh, just a regular guy, right? Just a regular, everybody's favorite elf. Our studies in Acts are coming to a close. The last half of the book, of course, have focused on the Apostle Paul. And Paul has admittedly had some pretty outlandish and astounding day-to-day -day experiences, including the last few passages that we've been in, the shipwreck and the miracles on Malta and all that came before it. But it's interesting, as Acts ends, things become surprisingly routine. Luke will not conclude his account with a big climactic showdown between Paul and Nero, as we would expect. If Hollywood was writing this story, that's what would happen. The story doesn't finish with Caesar's conversion. It doesn't even finish with Paul's exoneration. There will be no more miracles recorded in the verses that follow, no salvations either for that matter. As far as events go, well, there's just a talk with some Jews and a day of preaching to them, and then a few travel nuts and bolts found in our passage tonight. It's a very interesting way at the end of all of these chapters and passages of all of these great stories for the book to uh, conclude, at least when it comes to Luke's portion of the book. We don't see what we might be expecting but what we can see is the Christian faith in operation in regular old days and regular old circumstances. Of course, regular doesn't mean unimportant or unspiritual, and that's a good thing because we live pretty regular lives. Um, <clears throat> one of the great things about Acts is just seeing the fantastic exploits of these brothers and sisters who came before us so long ago. But one of the really helpful things about Acts is that you and I continue the story and it's not only a story for apostles or for miracle workers or for people who preach to thousands at a time as the city is riding around them. Uh, Acts is a book for regular old Christians too, and that is a good thing. Paul was where he was because God had a specific and important task for him. But though we won't see Paul healing anyone or being busted out of prison by an angel, no riots, no shipwrecks, Yet as he inches toward Rome, which is exactly what God wanted for him, the Holy Spirit within him continues the good work just like he was in the middle of a riot or the middle of a shipwreck or one of these more fantastic accounts that we are so familiar with. We'll see Paul in, uh, working in the graciousness of the Spirit, the determination, the courage, a willingness to receive help. We see God operating in him and through him and continuing that good work that he began. This last leg of Paul's trip to Rome isn't all about the fantastic. It's more about the regular faithfulness and familiness of the Christian life. 
And once again, it shows us how God keeps his promises and he moves us forward even when progress might feel slow and when our lives might feel routine. There's nothing wrong with routine if you're within the will of God and following after him. We pick back up in verse 11 as Paul sails out from the island of Malta. After three months, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island with the twin gods as its figurehead. After a long wait in Caesarea and after coming through such danger on the high seas, there was still some waiting to do. Uh, just when you think you've waited long enough for the Lord to do his thing, right? He says, well, you're gonna wait a little bit longer. Now, Paul and company had made it through the winter and the Italian mainland is immediately to the north, but still there are gonna be a few delays, a few days here, a week there. And throughout, Paul just continues to model patience and contentment. If anyone had an excuse to have run out of patience, we would say it's Paul. All that he's been waiting for and all that he's endured and all that he has you know, sort of gotten through and gotten over and, and withstood, <clears throat> and he still gets to wait around a few days at, and, or a week at a time. Now, make no mistake about it, Paul was very determined to get to Rome. He had wanted to get there, not only to preach to the lost, but also to encourage the believers there for years. He had said so in his letter to the Romans. He said, I am always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you in Rome. That's a lot of longing uh, being shared by the Apostle Paul. He wrote that he had been prevented many times from getting to them. And now he's closer than ever, but still progress uh, is happening slowly. It only goes a little bit at a time. And yet he remains peaceful and patient, knowing that God will accomplish his good work according to his perfect timing. How often, if not always, but really how often is the meticulous timing of God the key factor in the stories of the Bible? When we think of these Bible characters, you know, and and, and we see how, yeah, they didn't, Abraham didn't want to wait for the promised son. Moses didn't want to wait to become the savior. You know, uh, David didn't want to wait to build the temple. All these people, the apostles didn't want to wait for Jesus to set up his kingdom. And yet as readers, we go back and we see, well, of course though, you, you, the Lord, we had to wait because God's meticulous timing was being worked out. God's meticulous providence was being worked out in a beautiful way that was so far beyond what the human mind could understand. And so we see it here in Paul as well. He really, really, really wanted to get to Rome. And he knew that he was gonna speak to Caesar Nero. And you know, he had that hope in his heart that, man, what if we converted Caesar Nero to become a born again Christian? I mean, so I, I'm sure he was just absolutely chomping at the bit. He had wanted for years to get there. He had prayed for years to get there. He had tried for years to get there. Finally, he's close, but he still has to wait just a little bit. And we see him at peace. We see him content. We don't see him complaining. We don't see him, you know, um, trashing his stateroom in the, in, in the, in the ship because he's mad at God because he's having these delays or anything like that. He's still just submitted to God's perfect timing. Now, Dr. Luke points out that this new ship had the twin gods of Castor and Gemini as its figurehead. These were said to be patrons of seafarers. And that if you were in a storm and you could see the constellation Gemini, it was a good omen. Those who had been on the first Alexandrian ship with Paul knew that no painted image would save a ship from a storm like the Euroclidon, right? Uh, I'm sure they looked at the figurehead a little bit differently this time around. But there was a God that they had been exposed to 
who could and did save them from a storm like that. It was Paul's God. And I'm sure they took much more comfort in the fact that he was aboard with them than some mythological characters carved on the prow. Of course, there are people out there today who put some sort of stock in constellations. They check their horoscope every morning and sort of define parts of their personality according to the zodiac. In that same article that I referenced, Orlando Bloom said, I'm a Capricorn, so I crave routine. Come on, man, I wanna watch your movies. Like, you're just, you're just ruining it for me, but. Now listen, it's to be expected out in the world, right? Because people out in the world, the heart without Christ is desperately searching for something to anchor their lives to, for some sort of hope, for some sort of help, for some sort of guidance and protection. But let's look within for a moment. Christians today in some traditions put some stock in what we would call patron saints. Some branches of the church suggest you pray to saints, for example, that sort of thing. Even in evangelical Protestantism where we don't really do that, um, although sort of those sort of ancient mystical ideas are kind of starting to creep into certain uh, corners of evangelicalism. But even among evangelicals, we sometimes see God's people effectively making um, certain leaders or political figures or popular uh, figures in Christianity sort of like patron saints. Sometimes we see people putting the hope and guidance of their lives in the hands of these characters or whatever they say, that's what I do. Whatever they say, that's what I think. Whatever their book tells me to do, I'm going to go do. And when their next book tells me to do something else, I'm going to do something else. Uh, we do that with politicians sometimes too. And the truth is none of that is necessary or helpful. Because listen, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of Almighty God lives within you. And day and night, in addition to that, you have Jesus Christ as your advocate interceding for you. And so, you know, I don't wanna get into a big fight with anybody who wants to talk about, you know, whether there's any sort of basis to pray to departed saints. There's not a biblical basis for that, but you know, I, I, I don't wanna fight anybody about it. But here's what I will say. If you needed an important job done at your house, some kind of fix-it job, you know, if you needed a foundation repair, right? If you needed an, an addition put on to your house, would you ask the high school woodshop student to do it if at the same time the professional contractor was willing to do it for free? No, no, I'm gonna have, you know, Timmy from over here. <laughs> He's once seen a bag of concrete. I'm gonna have him work on my foundation, right? Uh, and so, you know, you don't need a horoscope and you don't need a patron saint either. And so we have the Lord God himself who dwells with us and ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, this scene here of them boarding this ship illustrates some real world experiences for us because we are surrounded by godless individuals, godless companies, godless governments who are doing all kinds of things and they're getting their information and their guidance from all sorts of weird sources. Some of them make sense, a lot of them don't make sense. And you know, as Christians that are going through the world and living life and mixing in with this fallen world as we're supposed to, we have to make choices about our liberties as believers and how to be in the world but not of the world, right? So the question is, well, can you sail on a ship that has idols as its figurehead? Well, Paul did. Uh, he acted in a gracious way here. He didn't refuse to board the ship because it had the twin gods on it, nor did it defile him in some way to sail on it. 
and, and so liberty is an important issue. It's a very personal issue, but it's something we need to work out with the Lord. And we need to remember, though, that Christians are called to be holy and winsome, right? We are called to be not of the world, but we have to be in the world. And we just want to be thoughtful when the next boycott, call for boycott comes around, right? And just like, well, let's boycott everything. Somebody said the other day, you know, if we, if we agreed to every boycott that's being called for right now, we'd effectively be making fire with sticks and gathering berries out in the wilderness, right? And so, you know, liberties are an important issue and, and navigating a godless world can be difficult and there are different convictions for different people. But quite frankly, not everything needs to be a big thing, right? Paul didn't say, oh, I, oh, I, can't, I can't go on this ship. I can't go on this ship because the twin gods are painted on the front. I, I can't do it. That was the ship. And it didn't mean he was gonna bow and worship the twin gods or anything like that. So we just wanna be thoughtful people. Don't just bandwagon for the sake of doing it. Figure out how the Lord is leading you, what the Lord is providing, and how you might be a light in the darkness. Verse 12 says, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed three days. The first little jog here was 80 miles, putting them onto the island of Sicily. Syracuse had been founded by a Corinthian back in Grecian times and was at this point the capital of the island. Cicero had once called Syracuse the greatest and most beautiful of all the cities of the Greek empire. Verse 13, from there, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day we came to Puteoli. The ship passed between Sicily and the boot of the Italian mainland. They were having a bit of trouble with wind. They had to you know, hug the coast, and, they, and you can see there they were kind of struggling for wind, and then finally that south wind sprang up again. Now, this wind coming up sort of brings two principles to mind on a devotional level. First, the Bible talks about the importance of not being a person blown about by the wind. Peter talks about it, James talks about it, Paul talks about it. It's an important principle for God's people, meaning that we're not to be driven by circumstances or by various teachings and doctrines from one breeze to another. It's interesting, these south winds in Acts 27 and 28, there are two of them, right? They give us a picture. One of those winds led to disaster. The other one led to the hoped-for destination. They both started the same way. And so, you know, as we are navigating life and sailing forth in life, we need to not just be blown about by whatever wind we can kind of catch in our sails or whatever wind seems like it's gonna get us in a good place. We need to be actually fixed and moored to the Lord our God. We're, we're supposed to be growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and growing in our intimacy with Jesus Christ and taught by him and conformed to his image. And, and the driving force in our lives as Christians is our relationship with Jesus and his work in our lives. And we discover it by understanding and growing in our knowledge of his unchangeable word, right? So as we grow in our word, we're able to moor our lives to it, build our lives on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ and what he said and what he delivered through his apostles and navigate life by that as opposed to, well, we're kind of just gonna coast around here and try to catch ourselves a wind. This seems pretty good for now. Okay, well, now there's this wind over here. Let's catch that now. And so, you know, when we have three different apostles talking to us about not being blown about, you know, in life, we, we wanna make sure we're paying attention to that. It was obviously important to the Lord. 
Second, as the breeze started to blow, I wonder if some of the survivors of the last wreck sort of found their anxiety rising. Their Fitbits were like, you need to sit down, right? As their hearts were starting to go. They said, hey, we've ridden this ride before. I'm guessing they were a little bit stressed out about it. After all, the south wind had started their long disaster back in chapter 27. And you know, as I was thinking about this, it was kind of a good reminder. This, this ends up well. This, this breeze is helpful for them. But as that, was, as that was coming up, you have to be, if you're Paul, you have to think, we headed for shipwreck number five right now? Because he had already been through four shipwrecks. And, and as we were thinking about that, I, I was just thinking, just because we weather a storm doesn't mean there's not another one brewing over the horizon, right? Because this world is full of trouble. We tend to think or hope that once we've made it through a trial, then we're no longer, you know, we no longer need to to deal with that kind of difficulty again. We graduated out of that kind of trial. Um, But so many of you know from personal experience that isn't true. We know from God's word it isn't true either. Sometimes cancer comes back, right? Sometimes it comes back worse. Sometimes relational breaks aren't mended no matter how much you try. The struggles we face as Christians aren't like achievements on a video game where once you beat the level, you're done with that level for good. After all, as I said, Paul endured four shipwrecks. He didn't need to get through the shipwreck trial. And then God's like, you, you learned the lesson, son, on to the next trial. I mean, the, the world is just full of trouble, but the Lord is always present and we can always trust him just as Paul did as he boarded his boat. I think after four shipwrecks, I'm done with boats and say, what do you have in a, like, a land bridge of some kind? Like, what are my options here? Well, it's certainly, you know, I would have been like another Alexandrian grain ship. We've got to have some other options. Like, the, the Polynesian people are like canoeing across the Pacific. Can we do that maybe? Right? But, you know, Paul was like, hey, the Lord's with me. I'm with the Lord. We might be going into the drink again, but okay, I'm going with the Lord. And he didn't say, well, I made it through that difficulty. I made it through that struggle. I learned what I needed to learn. And unfortunately, I think sometimes in popular Christian culture, we think all trials are just instructive in that if I learn what I need to learn, then then my trial will be over and I'll be done and I'll have graduated out of that. But that's not how life works. And that suggests that God causes all the bad things to happen in your life. And that's not true. And so... You know, sometimes a new storm brews, sometimes it doesn't. From Malta to Rome is about 500 miles. By Puteoli, they've made it about 75% of the way there. Verse 14, there we found brothers and sisters and were invited to stay a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The way that it's written makes it seem that Paul and his friends went on a hunt to see if there were any Christians in town. There were, and not only were they there, but they were ready to shower love on these newfound brothers who came in from the docks. We don't know who started the church there, but man, do we admire their readiness to serve. I want us to be a church like this. And and it's a hard thing. Uh, You know, we read about the Bereans back earlier in the book of Acts and how, you know, they, and we were rightly impressed by their devotion to scripture and say, well, you said this, but what does the word of God say? We're like, that's so awesome. Like that's so, you know, admirable. And we want to, sort of imitate that mentality of always prioritizing the word of God over the word of man. That's great. Um, and we name ministries after them still today, right? Berean is a, is a word that is used a lot. That's great. That's really good. At the same time, we should be stirred up by the faithful brotherly love of the Puteolans. 
So I spent all day like buying domains with Putiolin in it so that, you know, when those ministries start, we have the URLs. No, I didn't. But, you know, like the Putiolins are awesome Christians. I, they, maybe they knew who Paul was. Maybe they didn't. They were like, yeah, man, we're ready. We're ready to not only welcome you and supply you. Why don't you stay for a whole week? Why don't we let you show us, you know, what kind of warm brotherly affection we have for other believers? It's certainly not always easy to be welcoming and warm-hearted to strangers, but what a precious part of the life of the body that we're all invited to participate in, to be ready to be in relationship with believers around us. Now, the verse ends with a momentous sentence, and so we came to Rome. So much had led up to this, so much waiting, so much struggle, and now they were finally taking the walk into town. Between Paul and Luke, there must have been a lot of excitement and, frankly, a lot of apprehension. Paul had to assume that he might die after his talk with Nero. And he had told, he said, remember, when they said, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, what did Paul say? He says, hey, I gotta go, and I'm ready for my life to be over. I'm ready to die for the sake of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to talk to Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero is 25 at the time. He's not quite the mad Caesar Nero we remember from history, but he's probably already murdered his mother, maybe murdered uh, either his sister or one of his wives. Maybe it was a sister wife. I don't know. These guys are weirdos. And so, you know, he's obviously showing signs of being one of those kind of Roman rulers. Paul's not a dummy. He knows how these sort of things go. And so, you know, they, I'm sure, were very excited, but there was some unknown. And yet, despite the danger, despite the unknown, they could rejoice in the faithfulness of God. God had kept his promise. Jesus Christ said, you've got to go to Rome, and we're going to get you there, and you're going to speak to the Caesar. And when Jesus says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. He keeps all of his promises. Paul, God had given Paul the desire of his heart. Despite the false charges, despite being beaten nearly to death, despite being abandoned by the Christians in Jerusalem, despite the attempted assassinations, the red tape administratively, despite sitting in a jail cell for two years in Caesarea, despite the raging sea, despite being almost killed by the soldiers at the end of the shipwreck, despite the shipwreck, despite being bitten by a viper and then marooned on Malta, despite all of that, Nothing could stop the will of God from being accomplished. They could not be separated from God's love or God's work in and through them. Verse 15, now the brothers and sisters from there had heard of the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. We don't know exactly who came or how many were in the group, but Paul probably knew at least some of these folks. And there's a very strong probability that they had all read the epistle to the Romans, which had been written and sent about three years earlier when Paul was in the city of Corinth right before he went to Jerusalem that kicked off uh, this whole thing. In Romans 16, the end of that book, Paul sent greetings to 26 of his friends in the city of Rome. I mean, a bunch of people. And so, uh, not, not, and some of them we even know, it included Priscilla and Aquila, who apparently were living in Rome at the time, and the church was meeting in their house. And so, undoubtedly, Paul knew some of these people. And man, what a great moment, a wonderful, wonderful reveal this would have been for Paul, who had been so isolated for multiple years. Yes, on the voyage from Caesarea to Malta, he was joined by Luke and Aristarchus, but now 
to see his brothers and sisters who walked, some of them 35 miles, some of them 45 miles, so that they could turn around and usher him into Rome. What a beautiful act of love and fidelity. Like us walking to Fresno to meet somebody at the airport and just walking back, hey, let's bring you back. I wanna, I wanna show you this honor. I wanna show you this dignity. I wanna show you this affection and this care. We're gonna walk and, and bring you into our city. And we know how much you've wanted to come to our city. And we wanna be with you as you enter through the gates on the, that first day. Luke references the three taverns here. Ancient historians describe the town as being full of boatmen and cheating innkeepers. The sleazy shops, idolatrous ships, it again reminds us that we Christians have to navigate a pagan world and we should expect it to be pagan. We don't have to be happy about it, but it's a pagan world. It's a lost and dying world, lost in darkness where people love darkness rather than light. And so it, it's heartbreaking and awful to see the kinds of things that the lost world does, but it really shouldn't surprise us. It's a pagan world, a pagan God-hating world that is uh, embracing sin and embracing evil instead of good. And we have the good news of how to save people and how to transform them and how they can have eternal life, everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? But as we look out there and see all of the terrible things happening, we really shouldn't be shocked. Um, we should just say, yeah, that, that's what the world does. Pagan's gonna pag, right? And, and so this reminds us, they've got taverns and they've got weird gods all over their ships. Um, this, it's just part of the world that we're navigating. Now, sometimes this pagan world is gonna come against us as believers. Sometimes it's going to try to entice us. Sometimes it's just doing its thing in the background. We get to shine the bright light of God's love and truth in all the appy forums we find ourselves in. And that includes online forums, by the way. Okay, so forum, appy forum, right? But it, it matters. Our conduct doesn't only matter on the mean streets of Hanford. It also matters on the mean streets of Reddit. Don't go on Reddit. Uh, I remember when, uh, when, when in the previous millennium, all you youngster kids, and the internet was brand new, who remembers Talk City? It was like a, a place where there were chat rooms, like just different chat rooms. I wasn't allowed to go on Talk City as a youngster, which is probably why, you know, I'm not on death row today. So <laughs> anyway, online forums matter as well. Anyway, there's something important for us here. Look at the encouragement and just the upbuilding in Paul's heart. Now, the Apostle Paul is an amazing figure to us the greatest example of following Christ that we can name through for thousands of years. I mean, he's, he's at, the, at the front of the line. Uh, who can we think of that was more mature, more full of God, uh, more determined to honor God and to do his will? He's working miracles. He's writing scripture. He's having face-to-face -face chats with Jesus Christ in a jail cell. And even he needed Christian fellowship. He needed it. He needed that building up. He needed that camaraderie. He needed that connection. He needed that encouragement. He needed it. And so to be gathered with other believers, we see how it fills up the heart with courage, how it motivated Paul to praise and thank the Lord. We see how helpful and how necessary it was. All of us need actual, genuine Christian fellowship. 
It's not just a good thing, it's a necessary thing. It is one of the gifts that God has given us so that we might receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit and receive the help and repair that we all need day by day, week by week. And so as Christians, we want to treasure Christian fellowship and involve ourselves in it and guard it. Out there in the corners of Reddit, which you shouldn't be on, there are gonna be Christians who say, I'm the church wherever I go. And by that, I mean, I don't have to go to church anywhere. I don't have to be connected to a local congregation of believers. I just exist as a disembodied member of Christ's body on the earth. That's stupid and it's unbiblical. And look, more importantly, if Paul the apostle needed Christian fellowship, then you and I really need Christian fellowship and we should treasure it and involve ourselves in it, guard it in our lives. Verse 16, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier who guarded him. I almost forgot that Paul had a soldier in tow this whole time. This whole time, he's got a dude shackled to him. Uh, the scholars I read said to his right hand, he had a, a, a chain and a shackle, and there's a Roman guard with him day and night, all the time, all the time, all the time. In fact, for the last two years and for the next two years, he's going to have a guy chained to him day and night. I don't like even to wear a wristwatch very much because it kind of gets a little bit itchy on my, on my wrist. Can you imagine having an iron manacle on your hand for four years for everything that you do? They're not taking it off for any reason. You know why? Because if he escapes, that guy dies and it's a real problem. And so he's got this, this soldier chained to him day after day after day. But you know, even this dehumanizing inconvenience would have great spiritual benefits thanks to the power of God and the humility of Paul. Paul would later report that the whole Imperial Guard had heard his testimony for Christ because the guys would switch out you know, a few times a day, maybe two a day, maybe three or four. No one can agree. And he's telling them about Jesus and he's telling them about who he is and telling them about his testimony. And soon that spread through the whole Praetorian Guard. What a great thing. And if you're the kind of person who people are conspiring to kill all the time, which Paul was, just about everywhere he went, after a few days there was a conspiracy to murder him, you know, it was probably kind of nice to have a personal bodyguard wherever you went. And to know that, well, this guy's over here, he's got a sword, he's trained to kill, he's ready to kill, he doesn't want to be chained to me any more than I want to be chained to him. And so, yeah, he's probably like, yeah, come at me, man. Like, if you, if you want to assassinate me, you've got to come through this guy first. But Paul was shown grace in his Roman imprisonment as much as he could. We'll learn in verse 30 later on that he was allowed to rent his own house rather than being thrown in some dungeon. How did he have money for rent? Uh, we know that he received many gifts from the people in Malta that he administered to. Uh, of course, these believers in Rome and these other places would have uh, been helpful and, and compassionate and generous towards him. And so he's able to rent a house for two years rather than be thrown in some dark dungeon. Now that's what will happen the second time he's arrested, by the way. He's arrested a second time and we see in the, uh, his letter to Timothy that things are not so nice uh, in that second imprisonment. But for now, he's gonna live a regular routine life, at least as regular and routine as it can be if you're under house arrest. But I mean, it's just a kind of a regular life, just doing his thing. And even though it wasn't fantastic in the sense of being filled with miracles and angel appearances and those sorts of things, as far as the record goes, it was still full of God. 
still full of God's work in and through him, still full of him drawing near to the Lord and spending time in prayer and sharing his faith and being used by God in all sorts of ways, large and small. It was there in this imprisonment that he was able to write Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians. He was able to preach to the people around him, some of them peasants, some of them soldiers, some of them rulers. He would stand before Nero and preach the gospel to him. Uh, Most importantly, as always, even in the regular life, he was just as able to draw closer to his Lord. You know, God isn't only near or doing things with us during the shipwrecks of life or during the healing miracles of life. He's there with you moment by moment in the regular, ordinary life that he's called you to in Hanford or Lemoore or wherever you're from. While Orlando Bloom is mixing up his brain octane oil, the Lord is with us, right? And he's, and he's speaking to us and moving in our hearts and bringing us into specific positions so we can cross paths with particular people. And he's working all things together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his unstoppable purposes. What we see in these stories, especially these sort of ordinary stories, is that God is unstoppable. Now, we're always drawn to the miraculous in the stories, and that is good and that is great, but it's not usually our experience day to day, right? But God is just as unstoppable in the trip from Malta to Rome as he was in the trip from Caesarea to Malta. God's unstoppable. He's still present. He's still moving. He's still so much in love with you. He's still so involved with what's going on in your life. He wants to be more and more involved. He wants to draw you near. He wants to show you things in the ordinary. He wants to use you in ordinary, regular ways. And so we don't need to sort of hang our heads and say, well, I'm not an apostle or I don't preach to a stadium full of people or I don't do this or I don't do that. You're a child of God that has been scattered somewhere into the vineyard he sa- and says, hey, go, go work this vineyard. The harvest is ready. The laborers are few. And so I think a, a passage like this is just deeply encouraging to see the Lord moving through us as a church, moving in our lives as individuals, as he slowly and surely accomplishes his purposes and keeps his promises to us, how he can use day-to-day, even monotony, to do great things. Maybe, you know, I mean, think about if you were one of the Christians from Rome and you said, well, I'm just, all I did was take a walk. I, I walked 35 miles. And you know what you did? Man, you, you filled up the tank of the Apostle Paul on the eve of, you know, him speaking to Caesar Nero. Yeah, it was a small thing that they did, but what an important thing. He needed that. He needed that encouragement. He needed that buildup. Remember, he would say in his epistles, hey, pray for me that I would be bold. Pray for me that I wouldn't fear. Jesus Christ had appeared to him and said, hey, Paul, don't fear. We think of Paul as this great hero. He was a great hero, but he was a man just like you and I. He would fear and he would feel discouraged and, and he would feel like he was isolated and those sorts of things. He's gonna say later in one of his epistles, he's like, in my first defense, everyone, everyone abandoned me. I stood alone. And, and to just be one of those people who took a walk and said, hey, I'll, I'll walk with you from you know, three taverns into Rome, that made a difference. That moved the needle in Paul's life. And so God uses the ordinary in all sorts of ways that we can't even anticipate. And so embrace his leading, allow his Holy Spirit to cultivate those precious riches of patience, grace, endurance, fellowship, and usefulness in your life, and enjoy whatever place and time he has you in. If you're walking with the Lord, what's going on in your life is his business, right? 
And whether that seems prestigious or important or whether it seems ordinary and regular, that's the Lord's business. And all of it is valuable because he's infusing it with his love and his grace and his power as he does accomplish his purposes and work together all things for good for us who love him.